The question we will be looking at this morning is a question that uh, you may think you have uh, a quick answer to. And it's, if you've been around church for a long time, you really should have an answer to this question. Who can stand before God? Last week, Brooke mentioned to me about a time last year in the children's Sunday school class when the kids were learning about the portion of Scripture that we are about to read this morning. And uh, one of the kids summarized the lesson and what the lesson was about and shouted out these words as a way of describing what this text is about. And the kid said, no one can stand before God. I'm so glad. Our children are learning the Bible, not merely focusing on the people of the Bible, but on the God of the Bible. There's a big difference when we just think about reading the Bible and all we get stuck on is just the people themselves. And we don't recognize the God who is revealing himself in the Bible. Uh, no one can stand before God. That child in that Sunday school class got it. I wonder if we do as well. I wonder if we assume that the idols that we are tempted to worship are, are stronger or worthier than God. Well, this morning, as we consider this question, who can stand before God, you might think you have the answer. And I hope you do. But here's my hope, that it's not an answer that just lodges in our minds knowing the right answer to this question. But I hope that it's an answer that begins to get drilled in to our hearts. And even if you have it drilled in our hearts, I hope that we can be reminded of this answer so that it can get deeper and deeper into our hearts. So would you consider this question, who can stand before God? And let's look at God's Word from 1 Samuel chapter 5, verse 1, to chapter 7, verse 2. It's a little longer reading of Scripture. Uh, it is a story that has its ups and downs, uh, but let's consider God's Word this morning as we read 1 Samuel chapter 5 from verse 1 to chapter 7, verse 2. Here is God's Word for us and for our hearts. When the Philistines captured the Ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up besides Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon has fallen down, downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. But when they arose, Early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord and the head of Dagon, and both his hands were laying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, The ark of, God, of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon, our God. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? They answered, Let the ark of the God of Israel be brought around to Gath. So they brought the ark of, the, of God, of the God of Israel, there. But after they had brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against the city, causing a very great panic. And he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. So they sent the ark of God to Akron. But as soon as the ark of God came to Akron, the people of Akron cried out, They have brought around to us the ark of the God of Israel to kill us and our people. 
They sent, therefore, and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, Send away the ark of the God of Israel, and let it return to its own place, that it may not kill us and our people. For there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city. The hand of God was very heavy there. The men who did not die were struck with tumors, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. The ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months. And the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners and said, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us with what we shall send it to its place. They said, If you send away the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it empty. But by all means, return him a guilt offering. Then you will be healed, and it will be known to you why his hand does not turn away from you. And they said, What is the guilt offering that we shall return to him? They answered, Five golden tumors and five golden mice, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines. For the same plague was on all of you and on your lords. So you must make images of your tumors and images of your mice that ravage the land, and give glory to the God of Israel." Perhaps he will lighten his hand from off you and your gods and your land. Why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts? After he had dealt severely with them, they did not send the people away and they departed. Now then, take and prepare a new cart and two milk cows on which there was never come a yoke. And the yoke... And yoke the cows to the cart, but take their calves home away from them. And take the ark of the Lord and place it on the cart and put it in a box. Put in a box and it's at its side the figures of gold which you are returning to him as a guilt offering. Then send it off and let it go its way and watch. If it goes up on its way to its own land, to Beth Shemesh, then it is he who has done us this great harm. But if not, then we shall know that it is not his hand that struck us. It happened to us by coincidence. The men did so and took two milk cows and yoked them to the cart and shut up their calves at home. And they put the ark of the Lord on the cart and the box with the golden mice and the images of their tumors. And the cows went straight in the direction of Beth Shemesh along one highway Lowing as they went, they turned neither to the right nor to the left. And the lords of the Philistines went after them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. Now the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley. And when they lifted up their eyes and saw the ark, they rejoiced to see it. The cart came into the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh and stopped there. A great stone was there. And they split up the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. And the Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the box that was beside it, in which were the golden figures, and set, upon, set them upon the great stone. And the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and sacrificed sacrifices on, the day to the, on that day to the Lord. And when the five lords of the Philistines saw it, they returned that day to Ekron. These are the golden tumors that the Philistines returned as a guilt offering to the Lord. One for Ashdod, one for Gaza, one for Ashkelon, one for Gath, and one for Akron. And the golden mice, according to the number of all the cities of the Philistines belonging to the five lords, both fortified cities and unwalled villages. The great stone beside which they set down the ark of the Lord is a witness to this day in the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh. And he struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh, because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck 70 men of them, and the people mourned, because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. Then the men, the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And to whom shall he go up away from us? So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kiriath-Jarim, saying, the Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to you. 
And the men of Kiriath-Jarim came and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill. And they consecrated his son Eleazar to have charge of the ark of the Lord. From the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jarim, a long time passed, some twenty years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. Amen. This is the word of the Lord for our hearts. Would you bow your heads with me in prayer, asking God to bless the preaching of his word in our hearts. Father, we have heard of your mighty works. We have just read of the way you show your power and your supremacy. Father, we pray that as we hear the proclamation of this word for our hearts, that you would speak to our hearts. We pray for hearts that would be ready to hear, ready to listen, ready to, to accept what we hear and what you reveal to us about yourself. Would you speak to our hearts in a way that Christ would be magnified and your glory would dwell in us. In the name of Christ we pray for his glory and honor. Amen. Amen. Everything in these two chapters and a few verses um, focuses on the journey of the ark of the Lord as it was captured, as it was returned back to God's people, and as we will see how the, how the people of the Lord receive it. And prior to this, in chapter 4, the Israelites tried to control God and make God bring them a victory in their battle against the Philistines. Uh, they brought the ark of the Lord on the battlefield, thinking that such an act would get God, surely would get God to fight on their behalf and fight for them. But, to their big surprise, God allowed a great defeat against his own people and allowed his ark to be captured by the Philistines. It seemed like a total loss for Israel as 34,000 foot soldiers died. And it seemed like a total failure on God's part to come through for his people, working through the medium of this ark. It seemed also like a great victory of the Philistines over Israel and over Israel's God. If you had been an Israelite living in those times, Imagine you woke up the next day and heard the awful and tragic news. What would you think of God? If the ark was captured, has God abandoned his people? If God had let the Israelites experience such a tragic loss, is God able to protect his people? There are many questions like this that could have gone in the minds of the people of God in the aftermath of that tragic loss of chapter 4. But in the events of chapters 5 and 6 and 7, we see that even though Israel had been defeated and the ark captured, God is the supreme God still. And as we see in these chapters, we get to consider a question that the people of Israel will ask when the ark is being brought back. Who can stand before the Lord, this holy God? It is this question that actually governs the entirety of this episode, of these chapters. from Really from chapter 5 and chapter 6 and the beginning of chapter 7. Who can stand before him in the story of the ark, of the journey of the ark? We have three major acts, the ark captured, the ark returned, the ark sent away. The ark captured, the ark returned, the ark sent away. And the question is, who can stand before this God? Let's look at each of these acts and see how God shows his supremacy, his power, his holiness. Uh, we see it in the first episode, in the first scene, the, act, the ark captured. Uh, we see this in the first 12 verses. It's chapter 5, verse 1 through 12. This is the first major scene. 
If in chapter 4, God showed his people that the mere bringing of the ark of God uh, on the battlefield does not guarantee victory for the Israelites, that does not mean that God was weak in facing his enemies. If at the end of chapter 4, the wife of Phineas declared that the glory of God has departed, in chapter 5, we get to see the glory of God at work in enemy territory and what the ark is able to accomplish. The surprise is that after a very tragic loss and defeat for Israel, and without the people of God being able to fight anymore, even though in captivity and seemingly without any hope of retaliation, God still shows his power by afflicting the Philistine God and their people and their land. So we see in this first scene that God is self-sufficient to bring down other gods. Notice what takes place in the temple of Dagon. Uh, the Philistines made a big deal of their victory over the God of the Israelites because we are told in chapter 5 that they brought the ark of God and put it next to their own God in the temple of Dagon. Look at verse 1 and 2 in chapter 5. When the Philistines captured the ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up besides Dagon. Now in ancient times, the, this god called Dagon was known as a military god. So by bringing the ark of the Lord in the temple of Dagon and setting it up next to Dagon, the Philistines are, are trying to make the God of Israel uh, as a servant of the temple of, God, of, of, the, of Dagon. Uh, it's as if the ark of the Lord served as a kind of war trophy, showing off what Dagon was able to conquer and making the, the God of the Israelites a, a servant of Dagon. But the Philistines are up for a big surprise. The next day, after the ark was set up next to Dagon, the people rose early in the morning and noticed that Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. Now, this posture is an act of submission. God made Dagon submit before the ark of the Lord. Ironically, in order for Dagon's posture to be restored from that position of submission, Dagon needs people to lift him up and set him back in place, to restore his position. That's what they do in verse 3. In other words, idols cannot restore themselves. They need human beings to restore them to their place of honor and, we might say, right standing. Oh, friends, this is what often happens when God makes our idols fall to the ground. We often are tempted to go back and pick them up and put them in their right standing, don't we? Those idols would not be able to get back up on their own. But we, just like the priests and worshipers of Dagon, we also often are tempted to go up, pick up the idol, and put it right back. But in this story, God would not have it. The next day, uh, the people serving in the temple find out that Dagon had fallen again. This is not a coincidence at this point. In the same position, face downward before the ark of the Lord, but this time, the arms of Dagon and his neck are broken. To have the head severed from the body was an act of execution. We're going to see this again when, Samuel, when David cuts the neck of Goliath. 
We're going to see it again when Saul gets his head cut off at the end of the book. But here, we actually see God making Dagon be executed, cutting off his head. It's as if this time God executes Dagon. And the irony of it is that Dagon has fallen before the ark of the Lord and has been executed by God in Dagon's own temple. Now, in the world of sports, it's common knowledge that when two teams play together, there's a factor to consider, the home game advantage. It means that the team playing at home has the advantage of having a greater number of supporters and cheerleaders. They have the familiarity of knowing the field well. And because of the home game advantage factor, there are greater chances of victory when a game is home. Home game. In the events of 1 Samuel 5, Dagon has the home game advantage. He is in his own temple with his own worshipers around him, ready to pick him up, ready to restore him. God, on the other hand, has no other human beings to cheer for him. He's been abandoned on the battlefield of Ebenezer. No one is with him to help him out. And that's exactly the point of the story. God defeats and executes Dagon on Dagon's home game in his own temple, surrounded by his own worshipers, and God is all by himself, and God does not need anyone to defeat his foes. And through the, these acts, God shows his supremacy over the God of the Philistines. Even though the Philistines have conquered the Israelites in the battle of Ebenezer, in that bloody battle of chapter 4, that does not mean that their God is stronger than the God of Israel. Even while captured, God still shows his supremacy over Dagon. God is self-sufficient to bring about his desired results. The story in the Bible is a great illustration of the, of the self-sufficiency of God. Friend, if you've ever felt that God is dependent upon us to accomplish his agenda, that somehow God needs us to get his ways done in the world? Oh, friends, we're wrong. Our defeat and powerlessness is no obstacle for God to show his glory and supremacy. It's quite the opposite. When we are proud and think that we can bring about our agendas by using God, and we think that our agendas are God's agenda, God would often have us be defeated. God would often allow us to to fail, to show us that our agenda is not God's agenda, and that God can get his work done with us or without us. God's people can be completely defeated, and yet God can still show off his supremacy and power. And God shows that he is self-sufficient and does not depend on others. God not only subdues the Philistine god, Dagon, but he also shows his power against the people and the land of the Philistines. In verses 6 through 12 of the chapter 5 that we've read, we see God bringing plagues against the people and the land of the Philistines. The, uh, there's a phrase that gets repeated several times in verses 6 through 12 of chapter 5. I wonder if you picked up on what that phrase is. By the way, that's the beauty of, of, of reading a narrative. You pick up on what's going on in the story, what gets repeated. And it's only by reading a passage multiple times that you pick up on repetitions. But there's a phrase that gets repeated a few times. It's a phrase, the hand of the Lord was heavy. I wonder if you picked up on that phrase. It shows up in verse 6. Shows up again in verse 7. Shows up again in verse 9. Shows up again in verse 11. What's interesting about this phrase is that when God subdued Dagon, he broke not only his neck, but also his arms. It was a way of showing that the hands of Dagon were powerless. But in contrast, God's hands are powerful and heavy against the land of the Philistines. So much so that twice the people ask, 
what shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? We see this question raised in chapter 5, verse 8, and we'll see it raised again in chapter 6, uh, verse 2. In chapter 5, verse 8, the people of Ashdod call for the kings of the Philistines. And the kings of the Philistines have a very pragmatic uh, solution. Let's send the ark to other locations. Perhaps there's just something wrong with the people of Ashdod. Perhaps there's just something wrong with them. Let's, let's hold on to the ark and just move him, move the ark to another location. So they move the ark to Gath. But of course, the, the hand of the Lord is not only against the people of Ashdod, the hand of the Lord is against the people of Gath as well. When they realize that, they, they send it to another place, to Akron. And by this time, the people of Akron realize, wait, the ark of the Lord is coming to our place. We're going to be killed. We're going to be, we're going to be uh, afflicted with, with the hand of the Lord. By now, the Philistines realize that the hand of God is against them all. So they agree that the best thing for them to do is to return the ark back to Israel. So in this first scene of the story, we see God's power to judge the God, the people, and the land of the Philistines. And he does it all by himself while the ark is captured in the hands of his foes. He brings such judgments upon the Philistines and their God that the Philistines cannot bear the thought of keeping the ark in their land any longer. Friends, it's an act of God's grace when he acts against our idols, showing us that he is greater than any of them. This story also shows us that we are foolish to hold on to our man-made gods who cannot move without help. Uh, just like the priests of Dagon kept worshiping Dagon even though he had been decapitated and his arms broken, they kept worshiping this God. Instead here, we're given a picture of the self-sufficient and powerful God who can accomplish his purposes uh, even without us. Now, even after a total loss of the army of Israel, even after the capture of the ark, God shows his glory and his supremacy and his sufficiency. But there's a second scene. The second scene is not only when the ark is captured, the second scene is, is the, when the ark is returned. How does God show his power and supremacy when the ark is returned? We see this in chapter 6 from verse 1 through 12. Uh, in chapter 6, we see all the preparations that the Philistines made to send God uh, back um, the ark of the Lord, to send the ark back to the land of God. They asked the priests, what's the protocol to send the, ba the ark back? And we see four elements that the priests of the Philistines suggest. suggest. They suggest four elements uh, to send the, the, the ark of the Lord with a guilt offering, with praise to God, with glory to God, with a warning not to harden their hearts, and with a test to confirm that it was truly the hand of the Lord against them. Notice these four elements as the ark is returned. A guilt offering. The priests tell the Philistines the following in chapter 6, verse 3. They said, if you send away the ark of the Lord of Israel, do not send it empty. But by all means, return him a guilt offering. Then you will be healed, and it will be known to you why his hand does not turn away from you. And the guilt offering, they suggest, is five golden tumors and five golden mice. Now, both of these elements were unclean before God. Skin diseases and mice were signs of defilement before God. But even though these elements of, of their guilt offering did not match what, what, what would appease God, nevertheless, this is what they do. What's interesting in their, in, their, in their suggestion is that they acknowledge that these plagues are a sign of their guilty status before God. And in this recognition, they were correct. They became aware of their guilt before God and the need to appease that guilt. They were wrong with how to appease our guilt before God, but they were right to recognize that God's guilt or their guilt before God had to be appeased. 
dealt with. A second suggestion they have is to call the Philistines to give glory to the God of Israel. Look at verse 5. So you must make images of your tumors and images of your mice that ravage the land and give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps he will lighten his hand from off you and your gods and your land. Now, it's amazing that pagan priests would come to suggest to the Philistines to give glory to the God of Israel. Earlier in chapter 5, they brought the ark of the, of the, of the God of Israel into the temple of Dagon to humiliate him, to show that he's a subservient God to, to their God. And now their priests are asking the Philistines to give glory to God. Here we see God's power at work among the Gentiles by using their own priests to call the Philistines to give glory to God. What a shocking call. This suggests rightly that before God, we must not only deal with the guilt of our sin, but also positively turn towards Him to glorify Him. This means to declare His greatness. By the way, the first question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism asks this, What is the chief end of man? And the answer it gives, Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Oh friends, even pagan priests here recommend to the Philistines, to give glory to God. The third suggestion that the priests make is a warning not to harden their hearts. Look at verse 6. Why should you harden your hearts? As the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts. It's amazing that the Philistine priests are aware and have learned a lesson from the Exodus story when God had judged Pharaoh and the Egyptians with the mighty plagues. These Philistine priests have learned from the history of God's people, the foolishness of hardening their hearts before the God of Israel. Friends, to harden your heart means to think that you can fight against God and His ways and assume that you will win. To harden one's heart towards God is to think that you're stronger than Him and that you can keep ignoring His ways and that you don't need to submit to Him. It's utterly surprising for us to hear that the Philistine priests would give such counsel to the Philistines about the God of Israel and use the lesson of the Exodus uh, and, and warn them with the story of Pharaoh uh, of how not to harden their hearts. The last suggestion they make show that even though these priests had some good instincts in them, they are still not fully convinced that it is the hand of the God of Israel uh, that has acted against them. So, they suggest a final test to confirm their conclusion that it was the God of Israel. So they suggest that the Philistines would take a new cart and uh, put it behind two new cows that have never pulled a cart together. And that these cows would be milking cows with calves, take the calves away from them, keep them home, and put these two cows uh, under the yoke and let them pull the cart. If they would pull the cart away from their home, away from the instinct to go back to the calves, if they would put, pull the cart in the opposite direction and be able to, to pull it all the way to cross the border into the land of Israel, to Beth Shemesh, then they would say, it must be the hand of God. Because naturally, cows of that kind of condition would not do that. So they act on this test. And as we read in verse 12, the cows went straight in the direction of Beth Shemesh along one highway, lowing as they went. They turned neither to the right nor to the left, which for cows that have never been trained to pull a yoke, that alone was unnatural. But nevertheless, they turned neither to the right nor to the left and went all the way to Beth Shemesh. And the lords of the Philistines went after them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. God used these cows to put his final signature on the plagues against the Philistines. It's like painting a beautiful picture. Only in this case, it's a beautiful picture of the glory of God against the God and the people and the land of the Philistines. And through this, God writes in big letters, it is I who has done it. 
It was therefore clear beyond, 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 uh, clear beyond any doubt that he was a God of Israel who acted against the Philistines. Oh, friends, I'm amazed to see God's ability here in the second scene to use even pagan priests to challenge the Philistines to humble themselves before God, not to push against Him, to recognize their guilt, to give glory to God, and not to harden their hearts. I wonder what might be ways in which any of us are tempted to fight against God when, when He desires to bring down our idols. Do we pick them up again? Do we keep thinking, oh, it's just, it's just a coincidence. I'm going to work harder at keeping up with, with my idol. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep doing what I'm doing and not consider that actually the hand of the Lord could be in things in our lives that are broken, that God actually is behind the breaking of them so that He wants to reveal our idols. And God says, don't harden your heart. Give glory to God. Recognize your guilt. It's amazing that God is self-sufficient even in making the Philistines recognize who he is and the fact that he's the one who's doing it. But there's a third act. After the Philistines return the ark back to Israel, after the Philistines are told that clearly it's the hand of God who has done all this, we would assume the story's over. Uh, we can close the service. It's 12 anyway. But it's not over yet. There's a third act to this story. And this is, a, this, is a, this is the worst of all. This is the most convicting of all. The third part, we've seen the ark captured. We've seen the ark returned. The third part and the worst part is the ark is sent away. In chapter 6, verse 13, we're told how the ark is received by the people of Beth Shemesh. There's initial enthusiasm. Look at verse 13. Now the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley. And when they lifted up their eyes and saw the ark, they rejoiced to see it. They turned this event into a time of bringing an offering to the Lord. They decided to sacrifice the two cows and pulled, uh, the, that pulled the cart. It sounded great at first. But they made some significant missteps, which revealed their poor attitude towards God. When the Ark of the Lord arrived in their location, they set it up on a big rock in such a way that it could be viewed and looked upon by anyone. And because of this, we're told that God killed 70 men. Our instinct is to question God and the fairness of this decision. God... Is this fair? Why couldn't you cut some slack to these, to these laborers? They just got the ark back. It was reason to rejoice. Why kill them? Well, God had given some very specific instructions in his law that he had given to Moses about how the ark of the Lord should be treated. In Numbers chapter 4, verse 17 through 20, we read the following. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, Let not the tribe of the clans of the Kohathites be destroyed from among the Levites, but deal thus with them that they may live and not die when they come near to the most holy things. Aaron and his sons shall go in and appoint them each to his task and to his burden." But they shall not go in to lock on the holy things, even for a moment, lest they die. The Kohathites were the, one of the clans of the tribes of Levi in charge with the ark and were commanded to deal with the ark and with the holy things in such a way that they would not even look upon those things, even for a moment, because if the moment they look upon them, they would die. Earlier in, in Numbers chapter 4, God gave instructions that when the Ark of the Covenant was to be removed or moved from one place to another, before the moving of the Ark, the Ark was supposed to be covered. It was supposed to be covered by, 
by, she, by skin of the goats or the sheep so that even though they saw a box moving, they would actually not see the actual material. They would actually not see the actual ark. All they would see was a covered ark so that they would not die. When God gave those instructions for the Levites, it was not an act of harshness. It was an act of God's grace. God warned them, don't look at the ark because the moment you do, you will die. Cover it before you move it. Sinners would die if they got to look at the ark or inside the ark. That's because God associated his presence with the ark. So that to look upon the ark was like trying to look upon the holiness of God. And to gaze at his holiness for sinners, that meant danger of death. So all these instructions from number four were a sign of God's mercy to protect his people. God didn't want to kill his people. But it was the holiness of God that demanded that result towards sinners. But the people of Beshemesh ignored those instructions that God had given them. They set up the ark in such a way that it could be looked at and inspected. And God stroked down 70 of their men. God shows his people that they cannot treat him and his holiness casually, ignoring what God had decreed about himself. As one author put it, God's people no longer have the Ark of the Covenant now, but, but we can fall into the same Beth Shemesh mode of thinking. We can forget that God is holy, in a word, different, and that he does not conform to our expectations of an easygoing God, even when we worship him. Today, some Christians promote a notion of a casual interaction with God, of a God whom we can treat on our own terms, instead of carefully considering the terms which God had set up for us and for our engagement with him. Friends, as a Christian church, we realize that our access to God is only possible it's only possible because God has judged our sin with death. To be a Christian church is to recognize that our access to God is possible only upon the condition and the fact and the reality that God has judged our sin with death. God gave that judgment not upon us, but upon His Son, Jesus Christ. For sinners like us to be invited and given access to the throne of grace, to a holy God, it's only possible through the death of Jesus Christ as punishment for the sin that we have committed against the holy God. Oh, friends, God killed His Son, Jesus so that sinners like us can gaze at the beauty and the holiness of God and not be killed if we trust and rely on Jesus. But friends, now our access to God through Jesus Christ should never create in us an easygoing, casual, light-hearted interaction with God. There is a godly fear of God that we must continue to have as we approach the throne of God with confidence. God reminds his people of his holiness by ki killing 70 men in Beth Shemesh. And what's the solution of the people of Beth Shemesh? Instead of repenting, instead of turning to the Lord, their solution is to send the ark of the Lord away from them. Look at the solution, at the solution that they arrive in chapter 6, verse 20. Who can stand before the Lord, this holy God? This is the most important question of these chapters. Indeed, who can stand before the Lord, this holy God? Clearly, Dagon was not able to stand before this holy God. Clearly, the Philistines were not able to stand before this holy God. Uh, they sent the cart, the ark of the Lord, away from them. But now, even the people of Beth Shemesh recognize that they 
can't or don't want to stand before this holy God. They, of all people, should have known better. And here is the amazing part about Beth Shemesh. Beth Shemesh was one of the few cities in all of Israel that was devoted and dedicated by Joshua to be dwelt by Levites. Beth Shemesh was one of the cities that was supposed to belong in entirety to Levites. So we can presume rightly that Beth Shemesh was predominantly dwelt by Levites. They were supposed to know how to handle the ark of the Lord. They were supposed to know what to do with the ark of the Lord. They were supposed to be the ones who lead the people of God to respond well to the ark of the Lord. If anyone knew how to handle the ark of the covenant of God, it was supposed to be the, the descendants of Aaron and the Levites. If there was a place that they were supposed to, to receive the ark, Beth Shemesh would have been the place. But sadly, throughout the book of Judges and now in 1 Samuel, the Levites and the priests have acted corruptly. The Levites of Beth Shemesh failed to deal rightly with the ark of the Lord. And they would rather send the Lord away rather than deal rightly with the Lord. In doing so, they act like the Philistines thinking that the best solution to their crisis is to send the Lord away from them. Oh, friends, the irony of it all is that the place they choose to send it to is Kiriath-Jerim. Why is this city a big deal? We learn about the city in the book of Joshua. When Joshua was leading the people of Israel to conquer the promised land, there was a small group of, of, of people who were called the Gibeonites, who lied to Joshua and pretended to be nomads from faraway lands and asked Joshua to make a covenant with them not to destroy them. So Joshua did that covenant. But three days later, the people of Israel discovered that the Gibeonites were actually the dwellers of Canaan. And to listen to what they discover in Joshua 9, 16 through 19, at the end of the three days after they had made a covenant with them, they heard that they were their neighbors and that they lived among them. And the people of Israel set out and reached their cities on the third day. Now their cities were Gibeon, Kephirah, Beroth, and Kiriath-Jarim. This means that the town of Kiriath-Jarim was predominantly lived by Gentiles. It's amazing that the Levites from Beth Shemesh who are supposed to know how to handle the ark of the Lord, they prefer to send the Lord away from them and to send it to a city that was predominantly lived and dwelt by Gentiles. How pitiful. How pitiful that the Levites would rather live with God at an arm's length away from them. And instead of repenting, turning to the Lord, they send the Lord away from them. What about you and I? Are there times in our lives, in our areas of life, where we would rather not have the Lord examine us and be near to us? We would rather have the Lord at the door and not be too close to us because the closest and nearness of the Lord would actually bring upon us, will bring to our face the guilt, the sin, and the call to turn away, some of us might be more safe to think that we would be better off to keep the Lord at a distance rather than be too close to Him. Oh, friends, consider the ways in which you and I can have the same attitude as the people of Beth Shemesh. We would rather hold on to living our lives than risk being killed by the holiness of God. We'd rather hold on to the Lord, I'm sorry, to our lives, than hold on to the holiness of God. We have seen today how the Lord shows His supremacy and self-sufficiency when the ark was captured, when the ark was returned, 
and even when the ark was sent away. Friends, I wonder if today we can be refreshed and challenged to consider this great God, who, though captured by the foe, was able to battle on his own without any human help. This pattern of God's work, fighting the battle by himself, and winning against his foes was seen centuries later when the eternal Son of God took upon himself human flesh. He came to his own people, but his own people did not receive him. Jesus was rejected and sentenced to death by his own people. And while his death on the cross and his crucifixion seemed like a defeat, it seemed like all hope was lost, God, in His wisdom, chose to bring about the greatest victory over sin and death through the death of His Son, which looked like a total defeat. But on the third day, God rose Jesus from the dead, proving, indeed, that God, while captured by death, God alone was able to bring victory. God alone was able, as we have sung in the song early in our service, was able to burst forth from the ground and be victorious over death and over sin. God alone was able to work this great victory for His people without them being able to contribute anything to that victory. If anything, they had abandoned Him. Yet when the Lord brought this news to His people, many of them, just like the people of Beth Shemesh, chose not to receive Him, but rather to send Him away. Friends, today... We worship a God who is self-sufficient and who is victorious over sin and death through His Son, Jesus Christ. May we worship Him. May we recognize our guilt before Him. May we not harden our hearts. May we receive Him and not send Him away like the, like the Levites did at Beth Shemesh while we want to hold on to our own lives and our own old ways. Who can stand before this holy God? Idols can't. Rebellious and consistent idolaters can't. And even his careless worshipers can't. If only we would recognize our sin, humble ourselves before God, turn to him, give him glory, and worship him on his terms not ours. And those terms have been revealed to us in this book. Most supremely, the only means by which we can come in the presence of a holy God is through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. May we receive him. May we follow him. May we embrace him. Let's pray.